listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, friends of Resurrection Presbyterian Church. Christ is risen. Let's return today to a series of sermons preached from the Resurrection pulpit some years ago on the subject of a kingdom-conscious life. Today's podcast is going to be uh, a sharing again of the sermon I preached called The Kingdom and Your Calling. And of course, by calling, I mean, we sometimes refer to it as our vocation, uh, that primary expression of our labors on behalf of Christ uh, to advance his kingdom the earth, according to our gifts and according to his providence in our lives. And in this message, I want to uh, first stake out uh, the great Reformation truth that every calling of every man and woman, boy and girl, uh, is part of advancing Christ's kingdom the earth. And the reason that's so is because that kingdom uh, spreads to every detail of life, uh, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, involves every part of life and involves every single one of God's people uh, bringing uh, that lordship of Christ to bear on every part of life. So that's uh, a particular emphasis of this message. But then I'm also going to be emphasizing that certain callings are, if you will, the tip of the spear uh, in the advancing of Christ's kingdom. We recognize that there is uh, a certain kind of calling though it has some diversity within it, we call gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is at the very front lines of the advancing of Christ's kingdom. Uh, These are those that the Apostle Paul, for example, called his fellow workers for the kingdom. And because those who are involved in gospel ministry in particular uh, are at such a strategic place in the advancement of the kingdom, that's why we pray Uh, for our missionaries, for example, and our pastors and so on. And I'm going to, in this message, uh, also do a little recruiting. Uh, Those men and women who are thinking of how to spend uh, the greater portion of their energies and hours uh, in service to Christ ought to consider uh, the varied forms of gospel ministry. Before I'm done in this message, though, I want to make a very nitty-gritty observation. Kingdoms don't come on the cheap. Uh, They're not free. The uh, coming of Christ's kingdom uh, requires, as the Apostle Paul himself makes much of, uh, the generosity of God's people. And so at that most basic level, every one of us doing what uh, we do in our places, in our jobs, as we say, we're involved in advancing the kingdom in as much as we, especially We in the West uh, have the privilege of financing the kingdom. So that's what's ahead uh, in this podcast, which shares again a sermon from yesteryear at Resurrection, uh, if you choose to listen on. One of the ways in which we can become overwhelmed overmuch by our own sorrows and troubles in life is to fail to see the bigger picture we are very easily absorbed in our lives and the day-to-day, the sorrows that often come in them, we will not be able to consistently live out the hymn we just sang unless we get a sight 
of what God is doing bigger than us in the world. In recent days, in this congregation, we have been seeing that in terms of the kingdom of the Lord Christ and the kingdom coming and our part in that coming. And we continue this morning seeking to understand the practical relevance of this great work of God on the earth, the kingdom, for our daily lives. Colossians chapter 4 may seem like a curious text in light of what I've just said, but I want to read verses 7 to 11, and you'll see, I trust, the relevance of this in a few moments. Colossians 4, beginning at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Amen. Imagine that you are reading your Bible for a few minutes in a coffee shop. Someone sees you sitting there with a book on your lap and says to you, good book? You say, yeah. He says, what's it about? And now's your chance. What are you going to say? What is your book about? You should say, it's a story. A most remarkable story. It's a story about a great king, not a king who rules over land and sea, but over whole worlds. It's about a wicked insurrection and a great war that takes place in the kingdom and for the kingdom. It's a story about this great king reclaiming his kingdom, but it has the most amazing twist of plot. Just when you would expect the king, having suffered much by way of the hatred of his former subjects, to crush them all, he does the most unexpected thing. He dies for them. And by a means only available to a king like this, he offers them amnesty and a restoration in his kingdom as he comes back to life and leads them, those who accept his kind offer, in finally retaking all that he had originally made for his own glory. And the end of this story, the end is even better than it began. It's a bigger kingdom than it started with. It's a more glorious kingdom. It's a remarkable story. We've begun to see in recent months how there is a unifying theme in all the scriptures, and it's the kingdom of God. And it would be a far more accurate and more God-exalting place to start in talking about what the Bible's about to start with that 
the kingdom. Now, the obvious implication of that is that we're living in the midst of this story. It's a big story. It's a true story. And it's one whose good ending is already assured. But we're somewhere in the middle of this story that's coming to pass. Those of us who live with a keen awareness of that story, we've been calling in recent days those who live with kingdom consciousness. And at the outset of this year, we're seeking to understand what that practically looks like to be a kingdom conscious Christian. Last week, we looked at how that transforms our view of things like marriage and children and home. Those things are not ends in and of themselves. They're means to an end to the glorious advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, today, we're going to look at the practical relevance of the kingdom for our callings or our vocations. Each of us have been called by God to a life of labor, of dignified labor on behalf of the king and in a wide variety of ways. I already touched on this some last week when I spoke of the labor of parenting and especially those whose primary hours of their week are devoted to that. You've already heard something of this, how your calling is relevant to the kingdom. Today, I have in particular those of you who spend their 40 plus hours working a job, making a wage. How could that be relevant to the coming of the kingdom. There are three important things that we need to grasp to answer that question. The first is this. Every calling has its place in advancing the kingdom of God. And in fact, that is the ultimate purpose of every calling. Now, brothers and sisters, if you and I were in this world and our existence were in this world to take part in this advancing of the kingdom, wouldn't it be frustrating and discouraging if the thing which we devoted most of our waking hours to, the greater part of our energy, 40 to 50 or so hours every week, were absolutely irrelevant to the main reason we're here? Wouldn't that be a frustrating thing? I rather suspect that some Christians falls, even without thinking of it, into that view. Work, working a job, is merely a way of paying the bills, way of keeping food on the table. Christians can think of themselves as just very much more sophisticated hunter-gatherers. They're just doing what they do for that 40, 50 hours every week just to make it in life. That's a pagan way of thinking. And it's also a bummer. What a way to live. To think of what you do with your gifts, your talents, from week to week, as nothing more than just surviving. Brothers and sisters, the Scripture holds out something much higher to us of the significance of our calling. Genesis chapter 2, again, is a passage we looked at last year, early in the year. And this contains the verse that shows us in the first most remarkable way the significance of our calling to the kingdom. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, let me just remind you briefly of what we've seen about the significance of that. It's tremendously significant that when God creates all the glorious parts of the universe, He leaves that 
unfinished. That's tremendously significant. Genesis tells us how in those six days he creates each of the different parts of the cosmos. But it notes, Genesis 1 and 2, that there are still things that are left to be desired. There's a lot that's not growing, for example, because there's no man in order to cultivate the earth. And that's a hint for us of what is now going to become clear when God makes man and puts him in the garden and tells him what his reason for existence is. God makes a garden and it's beautiful. But God intends for the man to make that beautiful garden a picture, to make it actually just a starting point of what all the earth will be. And so when you read about Adam being made to cultivate the garden, don't just think of him as some groundskeeper. Like the man who takes care of a wealthy man's estate. It's already beautiful. It's all exactly where the man wants it to be. You're just supposed to to, to rake leaves and weed the garden and so on. No, no, Adam is created more like the landscape architect. Better, he's created like the civil engineer. He's, he's created to be like the city planner. He's created in order to continue the work of creating in the earth. To make the earth to be an even more glorious place. That's Adam's calling. And brothers and sisters, that's the calling of all of Adam's sons. Now, what I've been saying to you, I trust, has been uh, ringing some bells because this is a view of calling that is dear to us in the Reformation tradition. There had crept into the church in days past the notion that the only calling significant for the kingdom is the clerical calling, the calling to be a leader in the church. The common man had little, if any, part in the advancing of the kingdom. Reformers recognized that this was not a big enough picture of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't teach us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in the church as it is in heaven. He had a bigger vision than that. He said, You pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. How big is that? On all the earth, The kingdom and its coming is represented by every effort that is made by every Christian to bring about the entire earth into conformity with the will of God. And that's a job that every Christian enters into. When an evangelist preaches the gospel and a man responds by putting his faith in Christ and submitting to his lordship, the kingdom is being advanced there most concretely, a heart has come into the sworn allegiance to the king. But when that man who's been converted goes back to his work on the farm, in the factory, or at the office, he, too, is advancing the kingdom. How so? Inasmuch as that man has been restored to God's original design for man, he's using his gifts to cultivate the earth, Genesis 2.15, to make it more glorious and a more glorious reflection upon the one who's made it. So this is the great ambition of every working man or woman, no matter how humble or exalted his calling. I'm seeking to use my gifts to the full as a personal offering to God, but I'm seeking in doing that to exert as much influence as I possibly can to bring the things in my part of this world into more and more conformity to the will of God 
in heaven. You say, yes, but that's not going to be fully accomplished, is it, until Jesus comes? Of course not. We'll not be able to perfect the world any any more than we'll be able to perfect ourselves in obedience and conformity to God's will. But we aim for perfection in both ways. We aim for nothing less than to be the means by which this world is perfected in conformity to the will of God and the earth. I trust that no one here is guilty of saying, well, I'm not going to be perfect until I pass into glory. And so I'm just not even going to try. Even if that would never come in so many words to your mind, it can be a temptation. I hope you resist that temptation. Because the Scripture calls us to have the highest of ambitions. And it also shows us, and history confirms, that men who are possessed with this vision to bring all of life into conformity to the will of God have been given by God great success in transforming whole cultures, whole societies, whole nations into God-honoring communities. This is the biblical vision of the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, that means every one of you are pursuing a calling that is vital to the coming of the kingdom. Every endeavor by man is a means by which God brings the kingdom to a further state of advancement here in the earth. Some people have called that the Calvinistic view of culture. That's probably giving Calvin too much credit. This is simply the historic Christian and biblical view of culture. And one of the expressions the Scripture uses that I love the most, and you've heard me recite frequently, is that expression in Psalm 90. It's found in other psalms as well. The psalmist, in light of this, in light of this high view of calling, this high view of the significance of what we do Monday to Friday in our culture, He says, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I know, brothers and sisters, your labors can be grinding. And you can lose sight sitting there in your cubicle of how this has any relevance to the kingdom of God. I'm assuring you, on the basis of the Word of God, that inasmuch as you serve the King in using your gifts and talents, and in doing so, making, building, continuing to create and organize and cultivate the earth in which we live, you are advancing the kingdom of God right there in that cubicle, right there in your home, right there in your route, wherever you serve the King. And so, brothers and sisters, every calling has its place in the advance of the kingdom. You, you need to keep hold of this in order to recognize the significance in the eyes of the king of what you do. Second thing we need to see this morning, and it needs to be put alongside of the first in order for us to have a balanced perspective on the coming of the kingdom and calling, and that is this. Certain callings are more directly involved in the advancement of the kingdom and should be held in high honor by all of us. Certain callings are more directly involved in the advancing of the kingdom and should be held in high honor 
by all of us. This glorious reality that I've just been speaking of, that all of our callings serve the advancing kingdom, does not mean that all callings play an equal role in the coming of the kingdom. This is a point where we need to think carefully in order to be balanced. Some of you grew up with an expression that you perhaps put aside in later years, perhaps in the community of this church. You perhaps grew up, if you grew up in a Christian home, with the expression full-time Christian service, have you? You've used that expression as a reference to those who've devoted their employment, their vocations, to in some way promoting the advancement of the gospel. Preaching or teaching evangelism, that's full-time Christian service. Since that time, since perhaps you use that expression, you've come to have reservations about it, and I would approve some reservations about that expression. You've come to recognize, based on what I've just been saying, that Reformation insight about all calling is important in the advancing kingdom, that in a real sense, all of us are involved in full-time Christian service. In that sense, there is not this dichotomy between sacred and secular. All of our callings are part of the kingdom. But brothers and sisters... Let's be careful that one biblical insight not displace another. And that is that there is one particular kind of work that lies at the very front line of kingdom advancement. And that is the work of the gospel ministry. That's the work of being the instrument by which the Holy Spirit subdues the hearts of men and turns them from rebels against the king to loyal subjects. That work is the most strategic, if I may speak that way, of all kingdom work. At a time of war, there is a wide variety of offices to be filled in the armed services. There's a clerk who's pushing papers as a desk job who sits in uniform. And his role is, of course, important. It could even be said it's indispensable to the work of the kingdom. But on Memorial Day, you're probably not thinking of that paper pusher, are you? On Memorial Day, you're thinking about the men who died who died because they were the very front line in defending our nation in the armed services. There is a real sense, it's intuitive to us, that they're most directly involved, most directly engaged in the advancing of the kingdom. They're the front lines, they're carrying the firepower, they're the ones who are actually killing people and breaking things, which is how kingdoms are preserved and advanced. And that's the sense in which the Apostle Paul says something not completely different from that expression, full-time Christian service. Colossians chapter 4 is the passage that I have in mind. And there, the Apostle is sending greetings to the Colossians from others of his fellow ministers. And who were these men? These men, Aristarchus, John, Mark, and Justice. Well, these were fellow missionaries with Paul. They're devoted to the most direct work of kingdom advancement. When Paul says, as he does in verse 11, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom, you know he must be using that expression in a specialized way. These are not the only Jews who become Christians. 
These are the only men of the circumcision who are my fellow workers in the kingdom. What's he saying? These are the men who have joined me in that most direct work of advancing the kingdom, preaching the gospel of the king. That's the way he speaks. And brothers and sisters, that's why we so often speak in those terms ourselves. Why am I emphasizing this to you? I have a couple of reasons. One of them is not simply to try to address some low view that is present in our congregation of the gospel ministry. Thankfully, that is not the case here. It's rather, first of all, to continue to encourage you to have the kind of honor that you do have, particularly for those who are serving the church, as I put it, on the front lines of the advancement of the kingdom. Preachers and pastors are men it's not just good to pray for, it's smart to pray for. It's a certain kind of kingdom savvy to recognize these are the men upon whom, humanly speaking, the advancement of the kingdom primarily depends in the providence of God. Especially men that God has given great audience to. We speak of them in evangelical Christianity today as Christian leaders. We have a general term for those men who have, by the providence of God, gained the audience, the ear of a vast number of people. We have normal preachers and we have those extraordinary Christian leaders who truly are, by the speaking that they make and hearing that they receive, they're leading the church. Brothers and sisters, they are ones we're to hold in honor by our prayers. Missionaries. I had lunch with two this week. It was a great week. Sat down with two real American Heroes. Phil Proctor, who's on furlough and living not far from here when he's home, not traveling. Woody Lauer yesterday with several others of you. And when you sit down with a missionary, you recognize, maybe with a little bit of a start, they're very ordinary people. They would want you to recognize that. They'd want you not to forget that. You sit down with a missionary and they're very ordinary people as a rule. You might have certain um, romantic uh, notions of missionaries. You might have certain historic archetypes of missionaries. But the ones that you typically will meet are very ordinary people. I'm reminding you this morning, they do not serve ordinary callings. They serve in callings of extraordinary importance. The men that we have sent to places like Africa and Japan are men ordinary themselves who have been sent to extraordinary posts. These are our top guns. These are our men who we are to hold in high honor and prayer. It's not just good, it's smart to do so. That's why in your prayer guides each week for years and years, We've had a section, Kingdom Concerns, and that section is primarily devoted to praying for pastors and preachers and those who are on their way to being one of the two. That's one reason I'm emphasizing this point, but I have another reason. Why should we keep in mind that certain callings are more directly part of the advance in the kingdom than others? Why should we hold those callings in high honor? Because for some of you, perhaps... Many of you 
holding such a calling in high honor will entail your pursuing it. I'm looking at the young people now. I'm looking particularly at the young men just now. You hold, as you rightly should, certain callings in high honor as those most directly involved in the advancing of the kingdom, and that will shape your own understanding, your own sense of desire and ambition as you sort out what are you going to be when you grow up. Many of you have not yet been called to use the term that I've been using. You don't have a vocation yet. And there will be many things that will inform you as you do. You're a kingdom conscious young Christian. You will want to pursue a calling that will be most useful to the advancement of the kingdom according to your gifts and your opportunities. And that will mean you're willing to serve a desk job in advancing the kingdom. But listen to me. You're also willing. You are willing to go where the fighting is fiercest. Young men, you haven't, you haven't lived through World War II or Vietnam, but you've probably in your studies learned enough about those two conflicts to know how Remarkably different. The atmosphere here in America was as our nation was at war those two occasions. World War II, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, war is declared. And there came to be, in a short amount of time, a mobilizing of a whole nation. And a certain culture was created. I'm speaking generally, of course. But a certain culture was created. Uncle Sam needs you. And the young men who were coming of age in that time period felt in their own hearts... And were helped by the culture in which they lived to ask the question, should I go? Should I go to fight? And it was an honorable thing to go. It was even an expected thing for healthy men to go. The cause was great. The need was dire. There was great honor. And that honor informed men who came of age and thought to themselves, what am I going to do with these next few years of my life? In Vietnam came to be very different. Again, speaking very generally, it actually came to the point where men did not see any honor in going. They did not see any honor in enlisting. They came to view that as something to be avoided at all costs. They escaped the country if they could in order to avoid being drafted, compelled against their will to go. These were remarkably different scenarios. You'll understand Brothers and sisters, young men in particular, you may not be qualified to be a gospel minister. But every one of you should be like that young man in 1942 that says to those appropriate authorities, I'm willing. You decide whether and where I serve, but I'm willing. I'm willing to go even to my death because this is a great cause that we as a nation are in the grip of. And I will understand, young brothers, if you will have a certain sense of relief when appropriate authorities say to you, we don't think that that's precisely the call for you. I'll understand that as a matter of fact. I'll understand it. 
But if you do not serve in some most direct way to advance the kingdom, it had better not be because it never occurred to you or, God forbid, because you are unwilling to serve most directly in the advance of the kingdom. I would submit to you that in light of the great need of the church, the great need in the earth, the most critical factor in that is the gospel ministry. In light of those realities, young men, this is the most obvious question for you as you consider your calling. Should I preach? Just like in 1942, young 18-year-old thinking to himself, what should I do now? It's not a settled matter, but it's the most obvious question. Should I fight for my country? Am I going to let the ladies off the hook this morning? Not quite. The preaching of the Word, the leadership of the church, according to the Scriptures, we do continue to believe that the church historically that that is to be restricted to men for reasons in God's wisdom. But there are many ways which both men and women can give themselves more directly, teaching, evangelism, supporting the work of missionaries. Woody Lauer made an appeal to us yesterday. He said to us, we need missionary associates in Japan. We need people who will come and who will teach English to the Japanese. And in doing so, we'll be able to communicate in personal one-on-one ways evangelism and also establish for us contacts in the culture so that missionaries can come and develop those contacts and gather the church. We need young men and women to say, I'll give a year, actually two is preferred, two years of my young life, these most important years of my life, to directly working to advance the kingdom. What a novel thought. Two years, two whole years, the best years of your life, committed to advancing the kingdom in a foreign field? Sounds almost cultic, doesn't it? You and I are rightly impressed, I trust. Impressed in a certain way with the kingdom consciousness of some of the cults who have just that perspective. In order to get this... In order to get this kingdom advanced, we're all going to have to involve ourselves in some way in direct work of advancing the kingdom. Here's the typical concern of a young Christian man or woman as he seeks a career. What is the career that holds greatest promise for me for financial stability and comfort? And brothers and sisters, there's legitimacy to that. But a kingdom-conscious young person asks a prior question. What vocation would put me most directly involved in the work of the kingdom according to my gifts and opportunity? If I can't be on the most direct front-line work, how close can I get? Kingdom consciousness turns the choice of a vocation from merely a function of self-preservation and self-fulfillment to sacrifice and surrender to the aims of the king. Certain callings are more directly involved in kingdom advancement, and they should be held in honor in all the ways that I've spoken this morning by all of us. The last thing I want to say about how our callings are relevant to the advancing the kingdom 
is this. The calling of every Christian serves identically in one crucial way. The advancing the kingdom. The calling of every Christian serves identically in one crucial way in the advancing the kingdom. And that is financing the kingdom. We've been studying recently the book of Romans. And Romans is Paul's magnum opus. We've been understanding more and more why we could speak that way. It's his most powerful and sustained treatise on the glorious gospel that he as a missionary is preaching. But we learned right at the outset that one of the significant reasons that Paul had for writing Romans was to seek support without which he would not be able to go west with his gospel mission. He writes in chapter 15, verse 23, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, that's an understated note. At the end of his letter, or near the end of it, Brothers and sisters, this is an important part of the answering the question, why this letter to this church? Why so much invested in this letter to that church? I'll tell you why. And it has a very practical significance to Paul. The church at Rome is destined to be one of the most influential and resourceful churches in his day. And he has high ambitions to go west with the gospel. He's done his work in the east. He wants to go west He wants to disciple more nations. And he knows that he has had detractors along the way. And if he is going to secure the help, the support of the church at Rome, he needs to lay out for them his gospel. He needs to say, this is what I'm preaching. Isn't this worth supporting? It would not be much overstatement to say the book of Romans is a fundraising letter. It's a letter from a missionary saying, here's my gospel. I'm submitting it to you. Now, can you help me? Can you help me get this out to those in Spain and beyond? It's a fact of life, brothers and sisters. It takes money to disciple the nations. Kingdoms don't come on the cheap. It requires expense. Any kind of troop surge does. Putting men in the field requires material resources. Our weapons are different than the weapons of the world, but we have this in common with kingdom building the world. It takes money. When you have plates passed among you on Sunday mornings, don't over-spiritualize that. It's not as if the money as it gathers in the plate, the checks, the ink and all that, together has some kind of sweet smell like the incense from the altar. That's not what's going on. That's not it. You know what that is? You're buying war bonds. That's what you're doing. You're a people knowing that we're at war and that you are needed to advance the cause of the prosecution of that war by giving money. As you do that, as you go back to work on Monday, and as you make the paycheck that God has given you, you're doing more than just putting food on your table. This is glorious 
you're contributing to the advancement of the gospel. It's hard to get out of bed to go to work. It helps you perhaps to think, I'm getting out of bed for this woman, uh, these children. You think on Monday morning, I'm getting out of bed to go to work in order to make a wage, in order to be a part in the advancing of the kingdom. And you bring some of that money on Sunday and that's what you're doing. That's why our offerings are acts of worship. It's that practical. The glory of God requires a kingdom on the earth. Kingdom on the earth requires money. Hence the offering. It's that practical. I'm emphasizing this. Not because this church needs more of your money. That is utterly absent from my mind this morning. This is a congregation of faithful, tithing people. Oh, I'm sure that some of you are still struggling with this. Struggling with this duty that God places upon us. It's a foreign thing, or it's at least a new thing, that to think that one-tenth of what we make is God's portion and is to be given up to God through the church. But many of you have mastered that. You look in the bulletin of the offering for December and you'll recognize why I can say to you and have never had the need to say to this congregation, you need to make more effort to meet the needs of this church. We've always had our needs met in this congregation. Brothers and sisters, those of you, say, who have tithed for all your life, there may be some here like that. I want to say to you this morning, I want to say to you, you can tithe all your life without living and giving with a kingdom consciousness. I am speaking to myself. You tithe, God be praised. I tithe, God be praised. He's taught us something about the laws of the covenant. He may need to teach us something more, though, about kingdom consciousness. You see, there's a, there's a downside to faithfulness and tithing. You say, what could that possibly be? Well, it's this. It's this kind of mindset. So long as I give God 10% of my money, the rest is mine to do with as I please. Now, that mindset is the downside of faithful tithing. You see there what's happening. The tithe becomes not just a minimum requirement, an act of discipline, minimum required. It becomes a maximum of obligation. You think I'm about to establish a new law for you? going to legislate some new percentage, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm identifying, brothers and sisters, a different mindset. How does it strike you to think in terms of your budget and giving 20% or 30%? How does it strike you? Does it strike you as unnecessary? Oh, it's unnecessary. As excessive? Listen, the concept of giving unnecessarily or excessively is foreign to a kingdom-conscious Christian. That Christian recognizes the needs of the kingdom are immense. He sees himself and his good-paying job as chiefly an asset for the kingdom. And so he resonates with what John Wesley so famously said. He, the kingdom-conscious Christian, works as hard as he can to earn as much as he can, to give as much as he can. That's kingdom consciousness. That's why our Lord and His apostles hold up to us a standard of giving in the New Testament. 
that leaves the tithe far behind. It's, it's way back there. The woman who comes to the temple, the widow who puts in the offering box, quote, everything she had to live on. I don't understand exactly how that could be. She's commended. Paul commends the Macedonians who gave. And he says something strange. Not according to their means, but beyond their means. I don't understand what that means. What does it look like to give beyond your means? They go in debt to give? Dave Ramsey, I'm sure, would not approve of that. Here's the point. Tithe is your covenant duty. And you multiply your total income each year by .1 to set your tithe and you glorify God and please Him as you observe your covenant duty. Brothers and sisters, praise be to Him. But giving beyond the tithe, perhaps way beyond it, is your kingdom opportunity. It's a kingdom consciousness to sit down every year and say, all right, equation has changed a little bit. How much more could I give? This year. What part will we American Christians have in the work of the kingdom as a people? American Christians. For a long time, we had the unique role of sending more missionaries. I think it's safe to say, I haven't researched this, but sending more missionaries in an unprecedented way than any other country. There's certainly been a time when the church in America contributed as much of the wisdom, the sound biblical teaching as any place in the world. We Presbyterians resonate with that. We, our role in the church, universal, is to provide the big brains. That's what we're going to do. The big books. That's our role. Brothers and sisters, we're lagging further and further behind in each of those areas. There's one way. Thinking of the whole kingdom we are still in a unique role, a unique position of opportunity as American Christians. You know what it is? We're rich. We're rich. God has given us much of that money without which kingdoms can't be advanced. And a kingdom-conscious Christian thinks this is in part my role in advancing the kingdom. I'm sure that all of you, depending on your personality, strengths and weaknesses, have known something of impulse buying. And you know what happens. You, you buy something on impulse and then oh, you've got to buckle down and take care of that purchase. You've got to scrimp a little bit. That impulse buy costs you. I realize the dangers of impulse buying. It often is just irresponsible. But it would speak well of us, brothers and sisters. It would speak something of our kingdom consciousness if we were at least tempted at times to impulse giving. Perhaps having in coming months to buckle down, to tighten our belts, to withhold things from ourselves because we saw an opportunity to give and we gave it quickly and willingly. Perhaps one Christian leader's challenge that has affected me in recent days is more palatable than that notion of impulse giving to this congregation. 
that challenge by one Christian leader was to set a goal of increasing your giving, your percentage of giving, in light of the needs of the kingdom. 10% now? How about 11% next year? Plan for it, like good Presbyterians. Work towards that goal. 1% next year. We'll give in addition to our 10%. We'll give our 10%, say, to the church, but that extra 1%, we're going to think together and pray as a family who we will give that extra 1%. And if it's possible to give 2%, give 2% next year and make it your goal to increase every year by some percentage. Plan it in order that at the end of your life, when your expenses have waned and your assets have increased, you're not just sitting there still giving, relatively speaking, a pittance compared to your opportunity, 10%. It's a challenge that I've taken to heart in recent days. Think about how this could have a snowball effect on your kingdom consciousness. So you begin to be aware of someone who has some money, just a little perhaps, but some money to give to the work of the kingdom. You begin to be interested in what's happening in the kingdom that you could support. Think of how a snowball this could become in your consciousness of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I emphasize these things because it too ought to be obvious to us. How do we advance the kingdom? In our everyday callings, we make as much as we can. God has called you to make a lot of money. Then make it and make it for the kingdom. And give as much as you can for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. I've been emphasizing these three, three things to you. Every calling has a place in advancing the kingdom. Certain callings we should hold in particular honor for their role in advancing the kingdom. And all of our callings serve this function of financing the kingdom in order that you and I might recognize tomorrow morning, going back to that which... God has placed before us as our primary expenditure of energy in the world, that is vital to the advancing of Christ's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, when you get past the sense that is around us everywhere in our very business-oriented world, that your work is primarily personal self-fulfillment or self-expression, you come to see it as something that is advancing much, something much bigger. That's not oppressive. That's freeing. That gives significance to you if you're pushing a broom on Monday. That gives significance to you at every place of calling of the King. Let's pray together. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.